Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to the New Books Network for New Books and Military History. I am Boris Karpa, and I have here today Charles Manson, who is the former chief historian for the Marine Corps, and he has written a book titled Fighting for Time, Rhodesia's Military and Zimbabwe's Independence. Welcome to our show, Charles. Glad to be here. Now, there have been many books um, written about this subject, and the yours is, of course, um, I've read it, and I think it's a very important contribution, but I'd like you to explain this to our, our listeners who might not have read the book. Um, a lot of books have been written prior about the Rhodesian conflict. It's been subject to some public interest. And perhaps you could explain to us why you have chosen this particular subject. Why are we returning to Rhodesia now? Um, well, one reason is that it has been some time in the past, and there has been amount of um, serious reporting and academic literature on the conflict, particularly on the relations between uh, the United Kingdom and southern Rhodesia, which was one of their uh, colonies. And um, in the course of this, the military literature tended to be maybe overly dramatic or, or focused on more of the sensational aspects and really hadn't received any serious study as uh, a military or operational history. So that was the uh, gap in the literature that I was attempting to fill. So what we have here before our readers is a book which uh, in some extent is deeper in its inquiry of what happened rather than many books which we have seen which are more oriented to the general public, which have a lot of discussion of how the Rhodesian soldiers fought, what uniforms they wore, or what helicopters they used. But what we have here is a much deeper inquiry. Um, Yeah, I believe so. I mean, a a number of the military memoirs and articles, um, while significant in themselves as coming from a participant's really focused on uh, some of the superficial aspects without giving any of the background um, or um, context uh, behind the military actions. And then a lot of them take place at such a small or lower level uh, that it's um, information that's very uh, perishable and and, and ephemeral. So um, I was hoping to give some context uh, to these memoirs. Thank you. Now, there's a question which we ask, uh, which is uh, traditional for... Mm the show, and I think it's an important question to the to the people in our audience who are 
considering becoming writers or who are working on their own books, of, which we often have uh, among our audience. And the question is, when you were working on this book, what is uh, the most serious obstacle which you faced and how did you overcome this obstacle? Um, well, I, th- I think with writing any military history, you would hope to have a good storyline, you know, a dramatic storyline where the two sides are um, in highlight and in opposition to each other. Um, you also hope to have uh, participants available that you can query or interact with that um, took place in the conflict, but maybe have had some time to reconcile their experience um, with their views later in life. Um, And the biggest obstacle to the Rhodesian conflict for a historian was the availability of records and and documentation uh, that are kind of necessary to provide the foundation of any account because um, there was just no central archive to go to. Uh, uh, a lot of the military and police records uh, left the country for South Africa um, or they were actually destroyed um, at the end of the conflict. Um, and there, again, was no central repository to have access to. And and frankly, uh, when I started work on this, it was too soon um, after the conflict um, to, to do this. Uh, journalists, by their nature, um, are working without these same sources, and at times their work can be um, fairly questionable. Um, you know, it may be dramatic and immediate, but it isn't necessarily based on um, official information. And how have you managed, you know, I always ask people how you have overcome your obstacle, because obviously you have overcome the obstacle. We have a book. We're discussing uh, the results of your success on the show. So can you tell us how how you dealt with these problems? That's, uh, that's a good one, too. Um, as time goes by, or as time went by, the uh, British government made their material available um, following pretty much what they call a 30-year rule, which um, is that official documentation will be available to the public 30 years after the event. There was also the efforts of the Rhodesian Army Association, both in South Africa and in the United Kingdom, to make their material available um, in an archive. Now, that archive has since uh, been um, shut down, but I was able to access it um, and uh, use its material. And most of my research material is resides with the Pritzker Military Museum and Library in Chicago. I would like to thank you personally for saying these things because I do some of my own research and some of this is things which I did not know about and this will come in useful not just to our listeners, some of whom, again, are writers and researchers, but also to me personally. Thank you, sir. One thing I'd also like to ask 
And it's a bit of... I'm going to struggle wording this question properly. Now, one thing which you discuss in your book is that Rhodesian leadership originally did not want to, or perhaps they were not able to, recognize what was the full meaning of what was happening in their country, and at first they did not want to accept that they were at war, and they attempted to use police measures to, uh, to um, uh, deal with it. Now, we obviously know today that this was not a correct assessment. Obviously, this was a war, a war which they then proceeded to lose. But here is my question. In the context of their time, in the context of the intelligence information and the other information which they had actually available to them at the time, do you think that it was a reasonable decision for them to make within their context, or was this, you know, absolutely, you know, or was this um, unhinged? I, I think you would have to put yourself in the minds of the Rhodesian political leadership which had wanted uh, a goal that was uh, probably unattainable of securing independence on the basis of uh, minority rule, and it, which was basically uh, uh, European or, or white rule of an African and, and black country, and that they were seeking this through uh, the international community, but primarily with the uh, United Kingdom, which was the uh, power responsible for them. So by either dampening or, or choosing to minimize any internal conflict, they were trying to present the picture of normality uh, to the United Kingdom and uh, to the outside world. And um, the, the Rhodesian police force was uh, a very large and well-established institution. It was, in fact, probably bigger uh, than their Air Force and Army combined. And it had traditionally been the keeper of law and order and also uh, had provided for the external defense of the country, um, at least through um, the Second World War. So there was a couple of uh, institutional um, structures that provided resistance to declaring it uh, an open conflict and anything more than a uh, struggle against uh, what they viewed as uh, criminal or um, illegal terrorism, and that this could be uh, handled by their traditional methods, uh, traditional uh, colonial methods. So, to some extent, to some extent, if I understand you correctly, on one hand, they did, to some extent, understand that they were deceiving other people to what was happening, and on the other hand, they had a great institutional, um, institutional interest and interpreting this within the context of uh, the, the core competencies, uh, the capabilities which they um, already had. Um, yes, I mean, that's, that's true. And, and you have to keep in mind that uh, the period after World War II saw rapid decolonization 
in Africa, in southern or sub-Saharan Africa, and that uh, these conflicts were regional in that they, you know, stretched from Namibia through to Botswana and Zambia and into Mozambique, and uh, and Rhodesia found itself as part of, you know, uh, the opposition to what were called the frontline states. Uh, as these countries gained their independence from the colonial powers, the Rhodesians were uh, put in a position of really um, fighting against the tide of, of history uh, for their independence under minority rule. This allows me to uh, go on to our next question, which I think, I think to some extent... Uh, is connected directly to what you've just explained to us. Now, an inescapable issue in the discussion of uh, this conflict is, of course, the issue of race. Mm-hmm. There was one group which wanted to have a state of inequity, a state of where you know they were um, what they would they were in charge over a much greater group of people based on their race, and of course there are there is. It's, it's it's not there were some um, some African uh, um, African Rhodesians who were fighting uh, in the armed forces on behalf of minority rule. We have uh, an extended record of this existing, but largely the story is a story of minority rule and the story of of course racism and the perception of a. Uh, one group of people as being sorely different than whites, you know, not fully, I would even say, perceived as inferior in some way. Now, I want to ask, um, did, uh, did the, Rhodesian, the Rhodesian whites view of, uh, of their opponents as being racial inferiors, the, the stereotypes which they held, which are very evident if you read memoirs of uh, some of the people who fought in this war, did these stereotypes, did these racial beliefs affect their military planning? Did it shape their decision-making on a lower level in a way which handicapped them? Um, Well, the the issue of racism is tied into the broader issue of uh, colonial history. In, in Africa, and um, the issue of race in uh, Rhodesia has been the topic, particularly of um, academic scholars. So my comments, I think, is, as your questions indicate, we're looking at it in terms of its military um, impact. And I think, I think part of the situation here was the fairly professional and, and trained Rhodesian army was having to fight uh, guerrillas who ranged from being equally well-trained to, you know, what what would be called a seven-day wonder, where they basically uh, gave somebody some political indoctrination, a a weapon, and um, sent them, you know, into the country um, to create the situation of insecurity and and kind of classic uh, guerrilla warfare of being everywhere and being nowhere. But uh, the individual guerrilla was not uh, considered 
much of a um, a fighter by the Rhodesians, and I'm sure this in part was based on inherent um, feeling of racial superiority. And in fact, in the colonial circumstances where where any European was seen to be above any of a local in terms of status, um, it, it another byproduct of the uh, colonial heritage or background. And they, they also had, you know, a kind of a formal hierarchy in the country of, um, of your white um, British or, you know, United Kingdom uh, immigrants, your uh, South African European immigrants, um, East Indian um, Asian immigrants, uh, the group they, they called colored, which were the mixed race residents of the uh, colony. Um, it wasn't quite as formal as apartheid in South Africa, uh, but it was very much um, informal reality, and uh, it, it was a, a bone of contention. I think you also have to consider a large portion of the African population was what they labeled as as tribal, and these lived in um, the rural areas and in reserves and were engaged in subsistence uh, farming. Uh, this was the area where the uh, education was uh, primarily conducted uh, via uh, different religious missionaries, and uh, this this was an area where the British um, South Africa police, which is neither British nor South African, uh, provided pretty much the essential services of government uh, through the internal affairs or, or what used to be known as the uh, native department. So there was, was cultural differences or racial differences. There are definitely um, economic differences. And really all these were, were problems that the established government uh, didn't solve. And I, and I suspect you could almost say today they still haven't been solved. And one thing which I found um, uh, somewhat jarring to me, um, as a you know, of course, uh, I am a reader from a different period of time. When I when I read about uh, these events from the testimony of Rhodesian soldiers, um, the white Rhodesian soldiers, and they talk about um, about the African uh, fighters or African soldiers which they fight. And they accuse them of having all sorts of vices. They talk about the drug use, for example, among these guerrilla fighters, and they talk about this as a some as you know an element of these people being so bad, so you know uncivilized. And then often in the same testimonies, they will tell us about similar vices being encountered among the Rhodesian soldiers. Um, and and when I when I talked about uh, and of tribal, course they are I, far more forgiving when they talk about these vices among their own men, right? Um, and, and keep in mind when I was talking about a tribal background, I I wasn't uh, trying to be purgative about it. It just that the rural population uh, was a subsistence. Uh, group and uh, didn't have uh, the advantages of education, welfare, um, although they were, you know, like I say, fairly well taken care of by African standards. Um, the vices, I, I suspect, which, uh, would, are um, on par which maybe with you each could, other. 
maybe you could clarify this a bit for our listeners. As I understand from what you're saying is that there is a there was also a gradation of uh, of of uh, in of in terms of culture and social status among the African population of what they had access to or how they have been educated and brought up. It was there were not none of them were uh, all uh, as well off as whites, but there were different groups which were also very different from each other. Is that right? Uh, that's that's correct. I mean, there there was a developing black middle class. Uh, these primarily um, were in in religious fields, um, uh, labor labor leadership. Uh, they had education. Uh, they had a, a, a degree of wealth, uh, and these would have been the developing middle class that you looked upon to get your uh, uh, government and uh, and social and military leaders and workers from. Uh, there was a, a large African component in the police force, and there was a large African component in the Rhodesian uh, military. Uh, but again, they, they weren't put in a position where they could use uh, any authority over a person of uh, of European descent, um, so there there was uh, a change or a society that had developed, but it certainly hadn't developed with any speed. And I think I think the uh, Prime Minister of Rhodesia, Ian Smith, once said that uh, they wouldn't be in that position for a thousand years, uh, which kind of shows the uh, the rate of progress that was anticipated. Okay, so I'm going to move on to um, our next question. One thing a lot of books on this subject um, talk about is the operations of the special police. And uh, a lot of their um, actions during the war were covert actions. Some of them you talk about in your books, um, such as the pseudo-gang activities, which... um, were similar to what many other colonial authorities did in other countries, where they, of course, uh, infiltrated the, the movements uh, through forming their own fake guerrilla uh, cells, and other things were somewhat, um, I don't, I want to say unorthodox. Although obviously these are things which have been done throughout the entire history of war, where we 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 will read about them planting poison. Closing for um, the guerrillas to find, which had which was uh, coated in neurotoxins uh, or booby trapped equipment uh, or c- consumer goods, which were booby trapped. Uh, radios were uh, popular for this. And did these actions have any uh, any effect? Did they demoralize the guerrillas in any way, or did they just you know make maybe make them angrier? The, the Rhodesian police, uh, and it was also the source of the Central Intelligence Organization, which was their external um, intelligence system, um, had a lock on intelligence and what you might call uh, special activities. Uh, internally, they had a, a special branch, which was supposed to counter subversion, um, 
the Army and the Air Force had their own intelligence corps, um, although they dealt mainly with um, conventional military-type intelligence. But they, uh, they had an interest in dirty tricks, which seems to derive uh, from a colonial context. But I, I think if you look into conventional forces, uh, they, they also use uh, dirty tricks. And it covered a range of activities, some of which were successful, like the, the pseudo-operations, some of which were not successful or, or were merely, um, you know, uh, the odd um, poisoning uh, clothing and, and uh, material uh, had a harassing factor. It, it was supposed to bring about a, a sense of insecurity, but um, moving over to chemical weapons, it was found that that really wasn't controllable and and you know was as much a threat to the Rhodesian forces as the Zimbabwe guerrillas. Um, they engaged in um, assassination of political leaders overseas. Uh, these are things that you know uh, escape uh, legality and and morality. I always find it uh, interesting that it's the the keepers of law and order, the police, that involved themselves in in this sort of thing. Um, so there was an intelligence conflict that went on that kind of parallels the military conflict. Um, although I thought it was interesting that Ken Flowers, who was a former Rhodesian policeman and then the head of the Central Intelligence Organization, went on to remain with the uh, Robert Mugabe government after independence, at, at least for a time. Um, how effective it was, I'm not. I would would hesitate to guess because it's really hard hard to measure. Like I say, the the pseudo operations in terms of gathering intelligence and information um, was very successful. Uh, some of the more uh, bizarre things, like like the poisoning and chemical weapons, uh, you know, the the use of tracking dogs and this uh, weren't as successful. Uh, one of their uh, kind of unsung intelligence highlights was their uh, air photography and mapping capability, which uh, put them in a position to be able to control. Uh, terrain and, and population and locations, um, which you don't really hear much about. And of course, in modern, uh, in modern counterintelligence warfare, air photography plays a vast role. We uh, read about it a lot. Right. And um, uh, they had you know, electronic intelligence, electronic warfare capability as well. <laughs> the these are things which um, I think um, is are omitted from many of the, the conventional accounts of the war, and so, which brings me to another question, which um, interests me because um, I am conducting this interview from Israel, and uh, you know the topic of uh, counterinsurgency warfare comes comes up in uh, this country a lot. 
And so uh, once I, uh, one thing which I often read about in military theory discussion is the idea that uh, a counterinsurgent force can be in a, in a way too successful. And what I mean is, do you think it is true to some extent that the fact that the Rhodesian armed forces, and especially uh, the ones which we, we hear about a lot, like the Rhodesian Light Infantry and Fire Force and uh, the SEAL Scouts, is it possible that because they were so good at achieving tactical success and you know beating the guerrillas in these and these fights and battles, did it in a sense contribute contribute to the self-deception of the Rhodesian leadership that they could, in a way, win, would they have been more willing to have an, uh, some kind of settlement or compromise if they had felt they were not doing as well in the military sense? Was it, in some way, mm, a self-sabotage? Uh, th- that's a good question and, and is a key point. Um, the political leaders and the police leaders felt they were on top of the situation through uh, the first part of the 1970s, 1972. Uh, This was the time when the adjacent Portuguese colonies of uh, Mozambique um, had lost their struggle against their own insurgency. and, And to some extent, the two insurgencies in Rhodesia and Mozambique uh, uh, merged. And uh, the guerrillas, uh, no matter how poorly trained, were infiltrating the countries in large numbers. The Cello Scouts Initiative allowed these infiltrating guerrillas to be located um, or or anticipated and this allowed the light infantry and eventually the African rifles to respond with helicopter reaction forces. Uh, and you basically had um, a squad leaders war going on where uh, the Rhodesian air mobility and airborne firepower was used to eliminate, destroy the infiltrating guerrillas. Um, but even so, the guerrilla infiltration spread uh, throughout the country and uh, was, was continuous. And the end result was no matter how successful the Rhodesians were internally, it didn't stop the influx of guerrillas that were coming in from outside of the country. And in order to do that, they escalated in the mid-1970s to cross-border operations, uh, external raids that would target the guerrilla base camps and training facilities and and population centers. Um, Eventually, the external operations were more successful in terms of uh, numbers killed than the internal operations, but uh, eventually um, uh, by the late 70s, they had to target the infrastructure in the surrounding frontline countries, uh, primarily Zambia 
in Mozambique. And when, when I say infrastructure, it would be the roads, the rails, uh, the bridges, uh, power stations, uh, communication sites, and they eventually uh, would go after targeted um, efforts to eliminate the guerrilla uh, leadership. Uh, this was successful to a point, but um, by the time of the Lancaster House initiative, the numbers um, overwhelmed the uh, Rhodesian ability to respond to them militarily. And the only thing the military could really do is slow things down and uh, put pressure on the civilian leadership to come up with a negotiated uh, settlement. And uh, maybe one of the lessons that was needed to be learned is that if you kill off your uh, enemy leadership, you're left with no one to negotiate with, um, or you're left to negotiate with uh, the leadership that's um, maybe more fanatical or um, less inclined to negotiate. Uh, so that by 1979, the um, country really had had to have a negotiated settlement. And then that brought about the internal contradictions with the guerrillas, where you had their own racial divisions between uh, the minority Matabele and the majority uh, Mashona groupings that had a civil war after the independence. Thank you. Mm. Now, there's a question which often comes up in the military history discussions, and it's really something which is a subject of a lot of interest in uh, both in the military theory circles and in the military history community, the idea of um, how military organizations learn, how they have their experience um, informs their future actions, um, how they learn from successes and failures. And so I would like to ask you about the concept of learning within the Rhodesian security forces. Where was there an organization which was capable of learning? Was it, where they were, was it called a learning organization or were they people who were, as we sometimes say, stuck on stupid? Did they have the ability to learn and adapt tactically, operationally, doctrinally from their experience? Um, that's a, again, another good question. And I would have to answer it with a yes and a no. Um, the, the Rhodesian military had served outside of the colony in some of the other, uh, British colonial conflicts, um, in, in Malaya, in, uh, Suez Canal Zone, in Aden, um, in, in Kenya. And they took the lessons from these local conflicts and apply them to their own um, situation. Uh, some of this was formal. Uh, some of this was was informal. They had come up with uh, their own uh, doctrine and and regulations, um, but a lot of it was was improvised and and one of the main lessons they didn't really learn was the importance of civil affairs and civic action that that uh, 
the type of conflict they were involved in would be won or lost among the population and that they had to get the population on side through through either population and resources control or psychological action. And the Rhodesian military and the Rhodesian government had allocated this to the um, Department of Internal Affairs, and um, they never really put the resources to developing an effective uh, civil affairs, civil action program. They, they felt that the colonial approach had worked in the past and would continue to work in the future. Um, and I think, I think there was a question of at what point did they realize their strategic goal, independence under a minority rule, uh, was really a workable strategic goal. Um, related to this was their relationship with South Africa. And South Africa's position was they were more than happy to resist the frontline states as long as Mozambique and, and Rhodesia and, and Namibia uh, were able to provide a buffer zone. Once they were no longer able to provide an effective buffer zone uh, from uh, the nationalists to the north, the South Africans withdrew their support and they, in effect, used uh, their control of, of supplies and resources, uh, including oil, to um, <coughs> force the uh, Rhodesians to come to a satis- not a satisfactory, but a negotiated solution. So on one hand, the Rhodesian army was a learning organization. On the other hand, they might have learned the wrong lessons. Uh, They certainly weren't overly doctrinaire. There was more informal uh, lessons learned, lessons learned at the uh, tactics, techniques, and procedural level. Uh, Thank you. That's actually quite enlightening. Uh, and I think I hope it's as enlightening to our listeners as it is to me. Now, um, as a conclusion to this talk, I'd, I'd like to come back to something which is, again, you know, tra- tradition is a big thing on this show, as you have probably already gathered. Uh, tradition is a thing for us. And um, there's a traditional closing question, you know, because this is a show, you know, by and for... Um, much like the Senate is uh, by the people and for the people, um, uh, we have here a show which is by readers and writers and for readers and writers. And uh, in this context, I'd like it uh, if, if you could perhaps talk about which books you are reading right now or otherwise books which you could suggest to our audience. What is your current book queue, perhaps? What is your stage in your book journey? Um. Yes. Um, what I would recommend, I've, I've got a very um, exhaustive bibliography in Fighting for Time, which kind of indicates the material I went through on Rhodesia. So I would commend that to anyone who wanted to follow up. My, my personal reading is I'm revisiting a memoir 
by uh, Fitzroy McLean called Eastern Approaches. <coughs> and it's his travels through the former Soviet Union and uh, through the Mideast and uh, in the uh, Southeast uh, Europe or the Balkans during the Second World War. That's <laughs> kind of a, a revisited to a, a well-written uh, memoir that also deals with uh, the issues of um, societies in uh, flux and in uh, insurgencies, uh, being the British military mission representative to Tito and having experience with the special uh, air service uh, in North Africa and with the uh, British embassy in uh, Moscow prior to the war. Yep. Uh, Mr. Nelson, I would like to first of all uh, wish you and of course our audience a happy new year. We are recording this on the first day of 2022. So um, happy new year to both you and our our listeners, and I would like to thank you for being with us today. Um, I enjoyed being here. I enjoyed uh, talking about the book, which uh, was written over a, a period of time, and um, I think like all histories, you need time for the uh, events to provide uh, primary and secondary sources that lets the historian dig into it. Sir, I, again, thank you for being with us today. And thank you. I'd like to thank our listeners for listening to our show today. You've been, this was Boris Karpa and Charles Melson at the New Books Network. Thank you all.